This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. This was my pandemic book. I started this book during lockdown, you know, and that's kind of the books that we see coming out right now. Those are lockdown books. So I didn't have the option to go to Germany. I was all a lot of borrowing books through the library kind of online because you you couldn't even go into libraries at the time. I had books. I literally just returned books for a previous project that I'd had for two years because it was from the, the CU Boulder Library. I checked them out the day I met the man that I recently married last year. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I had those books as long as I've had my husband. for that next idea and I randomly clicked on this article about one of the British royals who had recently gotten married and wore a crown that had been one of the Russian czar's crowns and buried in the middle of that article was this paragraph about this man in the Midwest who was a scrap metal dealer who for $14,000 bought what he thought was just like this hunk of gold or whatever and he was going to melt it down and sell it And as he was cleaning it up and preparing to melt it down, realized he had something much more valuable. And it was one of the missing Imperial Fabergé Easter eggs. And he ended up selling it to a museum for $33 million. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to another fascinating episode of the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today we are talking to two highly accomplished novelists of historical fiction who have a talent for bringing little-known stories to light, creating vibrant, important, and revealing looks at the past through their compelling protagonists. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan-Henry. Our guests today are Amy Runyon and Kelly Stort. Both of these authors have brought stories and mysteries from the past alive in their fiction. Our first guest is Amy Runyon. Amy writes fiction, both historical and now contemporary, that celebrates the spirit of strong women. In addition to her writing, she is active as a speaker and educator in the writing community. 
Her newest book, The School for German Brides, was released on 426 from William Morrow. It has received many rave reviews, including from Rachel McMillan, author of The Mozart Code, who said, A bravely examined and deeply important book destined to elevate the discourse central to historical fiction. Some wise words and very accurate. We love our Rachel McMillan, don't we? Oh, yeah. don't we? Oh, oh my, my goodness, goodness, yes. Talk about a good literary citizen. Yes. Well, welcome, Amy. I am so happy to talk to you about this book. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Hi, Patty. Hi, Ron. Hi. <laughs> Before we take a deeper dive, can you tell us a little bit about the overview of your book, what it's about, what, what it is essential that we know before we take a deeper dive? Okay, so it is was inspired by doing research. It is about the schools that were constructed for young women in the era right before World War II and continuing through the entire war to teach women how to be proper German housewives. So basically, it was home ec on steroids with a big dose of Nazi propaganda. And that was the inspiration for the whole thing. And that's Basically, the central kernel for the whole story, but it expands far beyond that simple program to examine the role of women in Nazi Germany. Yes, and very successfully, I might add. So, Amy, we love to talk about where the ideas come from. And you talked about what the book is about. But what was the original spark that grabbed you that made this a book you had to you had to give us? Well, um, when I was researching for Across the Winding River, which was my previous book, I came across, because it also is kind of a deep dive into the life in Germany during the war, which tends to be something that's overviewed. We like looking at like the resistance in France is hugely popular, the Blitz in London, um, but Germany, um, because they're the bad guys, um, and rightfully so, they kind of their story gets overlooked. And I kind of like understanding the thought process behind the bad guys to understand how things happened. And that when I came was doing research for Across the Winding River, I came across an article because there was a character getting married. And I came across this article about these bride schools that were invented wow. to train women how to be effective German housewives, efficient German housewives. And they have these schools, the most famous of which is the one that is um, featured in the School for German Brides on Lake, uh, on Schwellenwender Island in, on Lake Wannsee, very near Berlin. And the building still exists today. And it is, it was a center for the most prestigious brides of the most, the high ranking SS officers. And I saw this article about how, what they were taught and what their beliefs were. And I was horrified. And the image that popped into my head was the Stepford Wives. Yes. So, so I thought, you know, I want to write a book that kind of merges something like the Nightingale or, um, you know, the, you know, those kind of heroic stories, but with an element of the Stepford Wives and without kind of making it into a savior story, because that's not accurate either. So that's kind of what the the whole genesis of the School for German Brides was. There is there was one scene I won't give it away, but there's a scene where I just in my head I went, oh, Stepford Wives. It's it's amazing yeah. where, and I'm thinking about it a lot because I'm deciding what to do next, and it's amazing to look at where these little seeds come from. And you were researching, mm -hmm. and it happens all the time as authors. Mm -hmm. We're researching something else. 
And we see something and it's like a little seed that we don't even know is getting planted. And then later we're like, wait a minute, why was there a school for wives, right? Like there's this, this kind of ping we get. And I'm really interested always in Mm -hmm. fellow historical writers, research methods, because I know how important it is. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk to us about your research for this book, for approaching and gathering the information and incorporating it into the writing without overloading it with the writing. So, you know, I know my last book was more boots on the ground, but the one before that was more reading. So I'm curious what your research was for this one. Well, this was my pandemic book. I started this book during lockdown, you know, and that's kind of the books that we see coming out right now. Those are lockdown books. And I was, so I didn't have the option to go to Germany. I was all a lot of borrowing books through the library kind of online because yeah, you couldn't even go into libraries at the time. I had books. I literally just returned books for a previous project that I'd had for two years because it was from the, the CU Boulder Library. Oh, no. I checked them out the day I met the man that I, that I had recently married last year. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, I had those books as long as I've had my husband. Um, <laughs> well, I hope the library was kind to you about that. Oh, yeah. No, I rechecked them out. You know, it's a research library. So they're used to people keeping books out for a long time. But this was a real check. We didn't try to return him. No, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) No, no, I actually bought a copy of one of the books for good luck because I'd had them so long. So, yeah, it was it was a challenging book to research because I couldn't do the boots on the ground aspect. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to Germany. I couldn't get into the archives. I did write the archives trying to find information because the cool thing that I found was that this was information that was uncovered about the Reichsbrauter Schule. They uncovered this information. I want to say it was in 2013. They found that the German government released this information. So I was able to get some information through that um, about, you know, I want to know what they covered and, you know, what the the curriculum looked like and what the philosophy was. Um, But in general, because and I have to disclose that a lot of the book does not play place in the bride school. Hannah, the main character's training, begins the day she walks over her aunt Charlotte's threshold because she um, to give a little bit of the backstory, her she's um, an or her mother's passed away. And her father doesn't want to go through the trouble of raising, you know, the last year of raising a 17-year-old daughter alone. He sends her off to Berlin to be with her aunt and uncle. And um, he's hoping that, you know, that she'll get a good education in Berlin and, you know, make a good match there. And so, you know, a a lot of the book doesn't take place in the the bride school. And I think that that, you know, as an expectation, I want to manage with readers. But the whole philosophy about food, the philosophy about clothing, the philosophy about the role that women were supposed to take in society, there is so much information from, you know, doctoral uh, dissertations and books and everything. And I married a historian. So he actually was a huge help um, in finding me some really cool source work uh, about the food in particular. That was really cool. So it was, you know, just a lot of online research, trying to get into archives and whatever books I could get my hands on while we're in the deepest part of lockdown. But it's also a very emotional book and that you don't need necessarily the research for. 
um, you know, getting into the hearts and minds of people. That was really the goal of the book. And so that was went kind of beyond um, the book. And of course, you know, ordering lots of, um, you know, secondary and primary source material from Amazon Marketplace, trying to find those old used books, um, you know, that was key, you know. I just think it's always fascinating that when we're doing the research, and, and it sounds like it happened to you, you butt up against something that now you have to do more research, right? You, you hit kind of, so first we're interested, like, I can't believe, and it sounds like this book, and I'm so glad you brought it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. We love these lost to time pieces of history mm -hmm. and, you know, they don't come to the forefront and, and now we bring them there, but you're bringing it, not just the facts, but along with the emotional impact instead of the facts of, Oh, look, they found this German, you know, school for brides and teaching them to be perfect Nazi wives, you're bringing in, which is what historical fiction does, the, the actual emotional ride of, of a very, you bring them to life. And mm -hmm. I need to know, I need to know, how did you weave those stories of Hannah, Carla and Tildy together in that way? What I guess what I'm asking is, did you know that they would blend together that way? Or did you did you watch it happen? I watched it happen. So <laughs> Hannah was the origin character for sure. I when I submitted the book, yeah, and there's I, I won't necessarily get into the, how the sausage is made as far as how the book deal came around, but it was I knew Hannah really well, like the back of my hand and her first chapters. Yeah, I was writing them on a road trip while camping with the man I recently married. Um, and, you know, we were, I was, uh, you know, writing longhand and I knew Hannah. But when then when I submitted the early chapters to my editor for going forward, she's like, we need a Jewish main character, too. We need to show the other side of the coin. And, you know, so I got some ideas about how I wanted to do that. And at first, you know, she had a loving, you know, entirely Jewish family. And then I'm like, no, I, you know, I, I want to have it uh, higher stakes. I'm going to rank it up. So she has a father who is Aryan, a mother who's Jewish, who basically has to live in hiding. And she looks Aryan enough to pass in the early days before they really started cracking down on Jewish rights and lack thereof. And she was able to slide by for a while. And that's what made, you know, it ramped up the tension. But Clara really just popped in out of nowhere. And I realized that's how I'm going to link the two. And Clara went from being, you know, this kind of welcoming, hey, why don't you join the BDM? It'll be fun. And the BDM, for those who uh, don't know, it's a Bundesdeutscher Meidel, which is um, the basically the Hitler Youth for Girls. And oh. yeah, the Hitler Youth for Girls. And it was the precursor to going to the bride schools. And of course, they had uh, a women's group and a women's auxiliary group that you would graduate into as well. But it was huge. Like that was the only youth group, the only youth groups that were allowed for kids. Like you couldn't join scouts. You could, I don't think you could even have like, I don't know, the equivalent of a bowling league or whatever, you know, or wow. it, everything was Hitler youth or the BDM. Those were the two groups that were allowed on a national level. And I needed somebody to kind of be Hannah's lifeline in Berlin because she wasn't pleased about, you know, the moving from the beautiful countryside and her lovely idyllic life where she'd ran around the countryside with her mother, who was a doctor who had, was not allowed to practice medicine because Hitler 
forbade women from practicing medicine other than midwifery starting in 1936. And so her mother was basically practicing medicine on the sly. And that becomes a whole thing throughout the book. But she has this wonderful idyllic childhood and a free spirited mother. And she ends up going to this very conventional household with uh, family members who are very high up in the Nazi hierarchy. And Clara is a person that kind of like reaches out to be her friend and is her lifeline, but try, also trying to usher her into the upper echelons of Nazi culture. So it's, you know, it, it, she becomes a very complex character. And I really enjoyed writing Clara, even though she doesn't get her own POV. Uh, I just think some of my favorite characters have showed up unannounced. And it sounds like mm-hmm. Clara is the same way. And yep. We can outline, and I believe in outlining, especially with historical fiction. I didn't used to do it as much with my contemporary fiction, but I I do with historical. And I can get wrapped up, Amy. I don't know about you. I can really get wrapped up in thinking I need to have it all figured out before I start writing because it is complex. But Mm -hmm. we... But that's not true because, look, this, this character that tied them all together, Clara, ends up being someone who just shows up and and ties the three of them in this really beautiful braid. So thanks for telling that story. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I outline too. I like to think of it more as a roadmap though. And if I want to make a diversion off the, you know, off the beaten path, so be it. And it happens more often than not. I I kind of imagine this roadmap I've made and I'm traveling along and then somebody's standing there with their thumb out, hitching a ride. Exactly. Come on and jump on in. Tell me what you got to say. Maybe you get to be part of this. So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear someone else goes through the same thing. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, One of the things I would like to point out, or at least acknowledge, is that you have a gift of, and I'll, I'll just give an example. One character has a dress made in a certain color. And in the next section, this colored dress is brought up in another way so that we know exactly who you're talking about rather than having to get beat over the head and say, oh, this one entered the room. But it just kind of tied it all together and just kind of gave it a, an extra layer that I just really, really appreciated as a reader. Thanks. Yeah, I uh, color is important uh, in this one. I try, I use color very deliberately throughout most of this book. I I can see that, and it's beautiful, beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. So I also want to know. So some of these stories, like, and we don't know, we don't know a lot of the stories from the bad guy, quote unquote, side of this, but we kind of get this whole glimpse of it in here. And it's stories I think that we need to hear. So why do you think it's important to tell these stories through historical fiction? Well, I think it's important to understand why things happened. And World War II, in particular, has been a conflict that has been almost glamorized in a way that I don't think is particularly healthy for for the world psyche. You know, you think, I mean, whenever I think of it, I think of, you know, this sweeping Pearl Harbor movie with Ben Affleck and how beautiful they made this conflict look. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. And understanding how people could come become complicit because, you know, we say, oh, if I'd been in World War Two, I'd have been hiding Jewish people in my basement and I'd had gypsies living in my attic and I would be, you know, out fighting the lions of injustice. No, you wouldn't. I'm sorry. Most of us, we're just trying to get through our day to day. You're worried about your own family. You're worried about your own kids. You're worried about putting food on the table. And that's just the reality of it. Um, You know, we see it, you know, even in our own times, we see injustices and we don't have the energy and the means to fight them all. And so I want I wanted to explore 
how and why certain people became complicit. Hannah being chief among them because she's young. She's 17 when the book starts. She's around 18 or 19 when the book ends. And so, yeah, she's old enough to be responsible for her actions. And she is 100% complicit. She's a young adult. But all the same time, you can see how she got wrapped up in it. And, you know, the end result is not her becoming a savior or the good, the quote, good German. And that's this trope I wanted to avoid. She tries to be the least awful version of herself that she can be. And that's that's enough sometimes. And um, that's what I was trying to explore with this book. And very successfully, because it came across very authentically as a real person, you know, not somebody who's like suddenly the hero of the story, but more kind of understanding what real life would be like for them. And speaking yeah. of real life, reading the book, I was really struck at different times by the threads of connection to the world we're living in now. Did you have that same feeling while you were writing it? And what do you think that says about? Oh, for sure. I mean, it, you know, especially writing about Tilda's mother, li basically living in their tiny little apartment without the freedom to go out, not even being able to go down to her own store and mingle with customers and feeling like for her own safety, she couldn't even go outside while we're in the middle of a lockdown. And, you know, I've got two tiny kids at home, homeschooling, you know, just being terrified about even, you know, we did. I didn't go into a grocery store. I still haven't been inside a restaurant in two years. And, oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. And it's just, you know, that level of, you know, and it's not the same. I mean, it's, you know. I, I know that it was different risking, you know, risking the health of my family is not the same as risking your very life right. going outside. But there there was enough to draw a parallel there. There was enough to be able to imagine what it was like and try to empathize. And of course, you know, the World War II and the parallels between the oppression and things going on now, it was very, very deliberate, very deliberate. And with everything happening in Russia and Ukraine, that could be taken to another level now too. Oh, absolutely. But, but of course that this book was long since put to bed when, when, before that all happened, but it's, you know, it's easy to draw the parallels between what was happening and it was very deliberate. It was very deliberate for sure. Well, it's always, it's always interesting to see when we finished a book, how it, how it might echo something going on today Mm -hmm. And it, I always say that sometimes authors have their ear to the ground and can almost hear what's coming, even though we don't understand why we're writing about it. So exactly. Yeah, I think that it's yeah, I think that the some of the best historical authors are the ones that really do pay close attention to the news and who are deeply invested in the big stories of the day because it's tomorrow's history and we see uh, the patterns. Yeah. You know, the old saying that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it and those who do are doomed to watch everybody else repeat it because we see those patterns happening. And, and there's, I think in a way, those of us who are writing historical fiction, it is a way to feel a little bit less helpless yes. because we are one voice among many. And it give, gives us a feeling of agency to be able to say, yes, this happened before. It'll probably happen again, but these are the options we have. These are the, you know, there are other paths that we can take as a society. We can be the light in the dark. Yeah, we do try to provide that light in the dark, certainly. And it's sometimes it's really, really hard. It's hard to see the things that are happening in Ukraine. It's hard to see the things that are happening here in the United States, dealing with people from Russia who are here. Um, and you see parallels with what happened to the German people living here in World War One, 
and you know the people who had maybe left years and years before the conflict and who are being held responsible for the actions of people they have no real connection with anymore and it's heartbreaking it is heartbreaking. it's heartbreaking and 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 you know my novel that's coming out not until next year but you know i researched the the refugees and the children who were evacuated during world war 2 and i'm looking at it in black and white and now i'm looking at it in color as mm-hmm. the you know, Ukrainian, and it's what a great way to put it's that. Like you said, it's heartbreaking. It, re- right. it truly is, Amy. It is so fascinating talking to you. I know. And we know our listeners love to stay in touch, so tell us where they can find you and information on your next book and this book on the socials and the internet. Oh, well, I'm all over social media. I'm at, um, on Facebook, you can find me at, at Amy K Runyon, A-I-M-I-E-K-R-U-N-Y-A-N. And that's my handle on Twitter and, and Facebook. On Instagram, I'm at Bookish Amy, B-O-O-K-I-S-H-A-I-M-I-E. Because yeah, long story there, but new Instagram <laughs> account. <laughs> yeah, Say no I more. Love that. Yeah. And. Let's see, uh, website at, is uh, www.amykrunyon.com and plenty of information there. Bright, new, shiny, new website. And, you know, the School for German Brides, that came out on April 26th. Next year, I have three books coming out. Wow. Amy! So, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. So next year, I'm going to go take on- a nap. Bye. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, I finished the first draft of the, my first book coming out. Well, the, uh, there's an anthology that I'm doing with our dear friends, Rachel McMillan and Janelle Soselski, that's coming out in spring of next year. And it's really cool. It's called uh, Ca- The Castle Keepers. And oh, it is. Title. Yes. And it's, uh, it takes place in three generations. Um, over, you know, the, the Boer, uh, just after the Boer War, World War One, and World War Two, all takes place in the same castle with members of the same family and their stories intertwine. And it's going to be all kinds of great fun. There's a poison garden. It's awesome. Oh my and- gosh, I can't to read it. Yeah, it's going to be great, great fun. And then my own history, my first historical novel that I'm writing for next year is called A Bakery in Paris. And it's a triple timeline dealing with the Paris Commune, uh, which is like 1870 to 1871, big uprising in Paris, and then post-World War II, and then a like close to modern day, like 1990s timeline. And it all takes place in one bakery and three women from the same family and their stories intertwining, um, lots of love and loss, but think of it as Les Mis meets Chocolat. Um, and it, it was great fun to write. And I fin- literally finished the, the first draft of that on Thursday and began writing the next book on Friday, which is my first ever Whoa. contemporary women's fiction. And we're working on a title, but it takes takes place in Provence and it's got a lot of kitchen witchery. It's kind of like under the Tuscan sun meets practical magic. And it's going to be a great deal of fun. fun. Yeah. So fun to write and not as much research. So I'm looking forward to just exploring myself as a writer and, you know, just having some fun with that one. And yeah, it's going to be great. So next year is going to be really busy. And I hope to talk to you all again yeah. about one or more of those projects. <laughs> or all of these projects. That's a, yes. They all sound so interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah it's it's, it's going to be a busy year. Yeah, it's going to be a busy year. But yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity working with you know, William Morrow and Harper Muse. And it's just been so, so incredible to have the opportunity to, to be able to work on so many projects. I'm just so grateful. 
I'm proud of you. That's so amazing. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Great. And it's so great to talk to you all. Yeah, well, we can't thank you enough for joining us. I think, you know, having heard you and knowing the plot of the School for German Brides, they're going to be running to grab this book. It's so good. It's so good. It's a it's a historical fiction lover's sweet spot. And certainly it's a great read for anybody, even outside the genre. So best of luck. And we can't wait for next year with all you have coming. I know. No kidding. Thank you so very much. And it was a, an honor to come on board. And I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Her first novel, Like a River from Its Course, was a finalist for the Christie Award. Her second book was, co-authored with Wendy Speak, titled Life Creative, Inspiration for Today's Renaissance Mom. It is a nonfiction book written to encourage and inspire creative mothers in all their God-given gifts. Today we'll be talking about her newest book, The Master Craftsman. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you all. We are so excited to talk about your newest, The Master Craftsman, what I call, and the internet, and you call, a modern day treasure hunt. I love it. Yes. <laughs> so I, I keep thinking that the guy who needs to star in this movie is, who was in the one about stealing the Constitution? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Cage. Yeah. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> the Master Craftsman to him. <laughs> this All is right. National Treasure 3. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So before we take a deep dive, can you tell us what the book is not only about, but what it's really about? Yes. So this book is a dual timeline story. So we're we're following Peter Carl Fabergé and the creation of the Imperial Fabergé Easter eggs in the past storyline. And in the modern day storyline, we're following a young treasure hunter whose famous treasure hunter father is dying. And he has one last mission to find a missing secret imperial Easter egg that was created by Peter Carl Fabergé in the early 1900s, disappeared during the revolution. And Ava Lane, this young treasure hunter, is tasked with finding this missing Fabergé Easter egg. So it's got lots of twists and turns, a little Russian mafia thrown in for a good measure. And um, it was just a really fun book to research and to write. And, you know, part of it is historical fiction. Part of it is modern treasure hunting. So it was just a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, you had me at Fabergé, just yeah. saying. <laughs> it's, it's such a fascinating history. We've always kind of known about these things, but what a nice deep dive into it. What was the original spark to bring the Fabergé egg to your story? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I, I was a Russian miner in college and I, I studied in Ukraine. I studied in Russia. And so I've always just had a fascination with the history of the former Soviet Union. And so all of my books tend to have stories from that area. And I had just finished a book and I was kind of looking for that next idea. And I randomly clicked on this article about one of the um, British royals who had recently gotten married and wore a crown that had been one of the Russian czar's crowns. And um, buried in the middle of that article was this paragraph about this man in the Midwest. He was a scrap metal dealer who for $14,000 bought what he thought was just like this hunk of gold or whatever. And he was going to melt it down and sell it. And as he was cleaning it up and preparing to melt it down, realized he had something much more valuable. And it was one of the missing Imperial Fabergé Easter eggs. And he ended up selling it to a museum for $33 million. Oh and I was God. just like, wow, that's so crazy. And so I started doing research and I realized that there are still several 
Imperial Fabergé eggs that are missing that have not been recovered since the Russian Revolution. And so that, you know, that was a little spark of like, oh, well, where are they? And who wants to find one? (laughs) I love, we just talked to Amy about this. When you think you're doing research about one thing and this little nugget jumps out and now this is about something else Mm -hmm. entirely. And who doesn't dream of buying something at a flea market or an antique shop or going up in the attic and thinking it's junk and finding out it's worth, well, 33 million. So, awesome day at work. Good day in the attic. But there are so many amazing twists and turns. And as a writer, and we do talk once in a while, you know, about our plots and such, but I'm so curious if you pre-planned an outline or if you just followed the story muse on this one? I, I did follow it a little bit. I knew what I want the ending to be. I knew I, I knew what the, the sort of twist ending was going to be, but getting there was, this is definitely the most challenging story I've ever written. I would think um, so. Yeah. It was just, I didn't feel clever enough for it. So I was, oh, I was very intimidated by the story. And I kept like, I kept writing stuff and being like, this is stupid. This is so stupid. And, you know, then I like send it to my agent and some of it was stupid and we cut those parts out, but some of it, she was like, no, 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 this works. So, um, a lot of it, I just, I followed the muse and just to make sure that I got to that ending that I knew I wanted to get to. When I am, um, writing something that needs a twist or a turn or is complicated. Sometimes I think I know the ending, but after I get there, it has shifted, but your ending stayed the same the whole time. Mostly. There were a few things that, that took me by surprise. A few things that I didn't necessarily plan on that organically sort of happened, but the actual, like what I wanted to, that sort of red herring, like at the end that I was able to maintain. That you were able to keep. I also find when I'm, doing that and and need to come up with twists and turns along the way. I am my own worst sniper. Like I'm sitting up, <laughs> up in some high castle and an idea bubbles up and I shoot it down before it even has a chance. Like mm-hmm. that's too, you know, that's too outlandish. But when I read it in another book, I'm totally fine with it. Yes. So yes. I think we can shoot down our own ideas before they're even able to see what they can become. Yes. And, and now actually I did, think a lot of the movie National Treasure when I was writing it because I thought everything that they were doing that movie is like super implausible. But like when you're watching it, you're like, wow, what if that's true? What if there is invisible ink on the back of the Declaration of Independence? You know, so I knew <laughs> what if I can like, find a secret drawer in the president's yes, death, right? And so all you have to do is like you have to make it just plausible enough for people to be like, but what if? And yeah. so you just have to have the confidence to do it, which I had to really work through. Well, now you have it. Yeah, now you have it. Now you have it. How much did this story change from the first draft to the last draft? I'm always curious about that because when you're writing with red herrings and twists and turns, sometimes you can look back, or this happens to me, I look back and I say, oh my gosh, this character has been waiting all along to be part of this, but I didn't even see I'd planted it. So how much did your first draft change to your last draft? 
As far as like the core elements of the story, not too much, but character development, particularly in the modern day storyline, I tend to struggle to make characters likable. I give them like this sort of like straight on personality. So I had to do a lot of work. I mean, the the historical storyline was a little easier because I'm writing about real people in history. So I can sort of like maneuver who they were, but, but the, the, the modern day storyline, I had to really work on crafting and creating those characters in a way that, you know, the editor didn't keep sending me a message like, I really don't like her. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this is like a therapy session for the two yeah. of yeah. And I was like, you don't because I feel like she's a lot like me. But, you know. <laughs> well, you're likable, so that's not true. Right. right. So the book is set in 1917 Russia. And I know that you've been very honest on social media about you, how you felt conflicted about talking about this book with the war going on right now. But it is such an important and fascinating piece of history. Can you talk about the conflict? And also, I want to know more about your research process. Yeah. So, you know, it's I mean, I finished this book two years ago. Right. So I signed the contract with the publisher two years ago. And but it just so happens that the book released one month after Russia invaded Ukraine. And and some of it was I wanted to celebrate the the Russian culture. Um, My first novel was set in Ukraine and Soviet Ukraine. But I, I, there are lots of things I love about the Russian culture. And one of the things that I love the most is they have such a high value of art and appreciation of art, which is why Peter Carl Fabergé was able to do what he did, because the Russian culture just values art so much. But as this was all unfolding, I just felt this like real heaviness in my heart because m- When I studied overseas, I lived in Ukraine. I still have friends in Ukraine who are running for their lives. And I just felt really heartbroken. And in the same token, I have really dear, dear Russian friends here in the States who are just devastated and heartbroken. And so I just had all this like conflict, like how do I celebrate the Russian culture when what's happening right now is so horrifying? But at the same time, I don't want to deny the the beautiful parts of the Russian culture. So I think the important thing is that this book can give some historical context because it does lead right up to the Russian Revolution. And Peter Carl Fabergé was even a little bit conflicted about his position with the imperial family because part of what led to the Russian Revolution was the imperial family lived in this like gross excess wealth while the people were living in abject poverty. And Peter Carl Fabergé was part of that gross abject wealth, you know, and so he but he was very conflicted about what he saw in the streets versus his position with the imperial family. So it gives some historical context even to what is happening today in Russia. Uh, Not much has changed since the early 1900s. And that's what's really sad and really hard to watch is Russia itself has not really ever broken out of that bondage. Yes. Oh, man. Can you talk a little bit about doing the research? I mean, I know you lived there, but can you talk a bit about researching the Fabergé, researching Russia when all before this all happened, but Was it more reading? Was it visiting? Was it, what was your research process? (laughs) Because like right now you could not go visit either one of those. No, 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I was supposed to go to Russia in October of 2020. I was going to go to St. Petersburg. I was going to go to the Fabergé Bag Museum, um, but obviously COVID halted that. And so I didn't get to do that. And, but in 2019, I had just started this novel and I went to London with a friend and we were just visiting like literary sites around London. And we went to this old bookshop and in the middle of the bookshop, I found this book about Fabergé, like it was literally called Fabergé eggs. And it was the whole history. And I had just started like doing some reading on this and that book like completely changed because it just told me all, number one, it told me all about Peter Carl Fabergé and his background, but it, it told all about the eggs and when they were created, why they were created, the idea behind them. And so that became sort of a basis for a lot of my research. And then I ordered this like big, beautiful book that cost me a small fortune, but it had all these beautiful pictures and descriptions of the eggs. And so that gave me sort of like this up close, like I could study the eggs and see the detail. And so those were really my two books that I used the most for research. Okay. Hopefully the book didn't cost $33 million. Not that much. <laughs> Not that much. Well, Kelly, I know you've also written a book about creativity, which is one of my favorite subjects. I, you know, when people ask me, what did you first do when you decided you wanted to write a novel? I always point them to Julia Cameron and the artist's way. So the subject of of creativity and resistance and how we fit that into our lives fascinates me. Um, And as a mom, you wrote a book to moms. So tell me a little bit about that book. Yeah. So I co-authored that with Wendy Speak. And years ago, I mean, she has three children. And at, at the time, I only had three children. But only. we would do only. only, I know. <laughs> How many do you have? have a million. I have five. But it feels wow. like a hundred. I um, know. I know. But we would do these creative retreats together where we would get together for three or five days and we would just write. And then we'd share what we wrote. And and we started talking about how like this was when our our kids were all small, like it feels so hard to fit in the work, but we were creators before we were moms. And somehow I feel like when you become a mom, you feel, you you think you have to like push that aside. And, and there is a season, particularly when your kids are very small um, in the book, in the book, we, we called it the dark ages, but there is a season where you do have to insulate, um, but you can still fit your creativity in, in, in interesting ways. You can get up early in the morning. You do, you can be creative with your children. And then there comes a time where they, they get bigger, they go off to school. You have a, maybe have a little more freedom. And listen, I, I homeschooled a bunch of them for, so this is like my first year in 18 years where I'm not even homeschooling someone, but you, you find ways to fit the art into the cracks and crevices because you have to do that because you were created as a creator. And so you shouldn't deny that that part of you because you're a better mom when you're, when you're fostering these parts of you. So, um, so we just wanted to write to moms to say, it's okay if you feel overwhelmed, but you were a creator before you were a mom. So how can you fit that back in to your, your everyday life? And, and how to fit that back in without guilt? You know, my without kids are guilt. Yeah. So I only had three kids, but, <laughs> but, and they're, they're now grown and, and one of them has their own kids. But I remember, you know, feeling 
guilty. And sometimes, you know, all the time I would get up my first novel. I wrote mostly from four 30 to six 30 in the morning so that I wouldn't interfere with their lives. And I look back and maybe it would have been better if they had seen me instead of hiding like, Oh, this is my secret life. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, as they got older, they saw me doing it all the time. And I mean, I dragged them on book tour, but it, to fit it in without guilt, I think is an, is another really important part. And I know that's in the book. So, yeah. 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 The big thing we just wanted to encourage moms is to embrace the way that you were created. You were created as, as a creative person. So embrace it. And run with it, right. Mm -hmm. The main theme today has been about bringing pieces of history to light. Why do you think that's so important? I mean, history gives us context for today. And again, like I think one of the benefits of this book releasing now is it does give some historical, even though it's sort of a, it's a fun treasure hunt, it does give some historical context. And if we understand what happened in history, we can make better choices and better decisions for today. And that's that's one of the big problems in Russia right now is their history has been muted and covered and hidden and propaganda has rewritten their history. And so they don't they, they always say never again, but they're doing it again. They're, they're repeating history because they mm. haven't learned it properly because the history they've been fed is, is wrong. And then I think, I think read, I mean, personally, I know like my husband, he hates reading fiction. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> he toils through my books because he loves me. But for me, I think I learned so much about history through a good story. Like I think it's just the easiest way is to pick up a good story and and glean that history that you didn't know before and it makes you better and also we were talking with amy right before you and you do it here is that we can get locked down in these ideas of what a certain culture is like russia bad german bad this good right and to to bring someone to life within imperial russia and show their humanity and their creativeness and their artistic you know, it takes away the shades of, of black and white, right? Only good, only bad, and brings to life very real people who were trying in that moment in history to do the right thing or do create their art or live their lives with integrity. So, yeah. I- you know, when I was researching my first novel, which was set in World War II Soviet Ukraine, and it was based on true stories of these former Red Army Soviet veterans. And I I toured all around Ukraine, just speaking to veterans. And I'll never forget one man. I was actually speaking to a school and he was a custodian in the school and he heard me and he stopped me afterwards and asked if he could tell me his story. And the first thing he said to me, I mean, we sat down, he immediately started weeping and he said, I just want you to tell people that we were more than just soldiers, that we were poets and singers, that we were men with a future. And I mean, he went on to tell me how he had a squadron of 600 people. And at the end of the war, there were only 11 of them left. And and, but he just kept saying, please tell people we were more than just soldiers. And so I do like what you're saying. I think we we need to humanize the rest of the world in these different cultures and their histories so that we can humanize these people today. Yep. Yep. Fascinating. Beautiful, beautiful, Kelly. So I know our listeners would love to find out more about the book, find a way to stay in touch with you. Can you tell everyone where to find you on the socials and the internet and the book and the Master Craftsman? 
Yes. Well, the Master Craftsman, you can buy anywhere where books are sold right now. You can visit me on my website. There's a bunch of links there. It's kellystewart.com. And then I'm, I'm an I. Yes, Kelly with an I. Stuart with a U-A. It's so confusing. <laughs> and then I'm also on Instagram, Kelly Stewart author. And I, you know, I post regularly there. So constantly sharing what I can there. You have a great Instagram account. I was to say, I love following you. I love watching it, yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly, and talking about Fabergé and history and creativity. Uh, We could do this forever, but I think we have given everybody a nice sampling of what the book is about, what you're about, and I think people are going to be all over this book. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk to you guys. You too. And thank you all for joining us to hear about these two fascinating writers and their latest work. As always, on behalf of Mary Kay, Patty, Kristen, and Christy, we appreciate your support and your tuning in each and every Friday. Please be sure to share with friends, and we'll see you next time. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletter. Remember to use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.